Sandifer is an inspired choice to write a short biography of this fierce defender of individualism. Well said, Jack. Who said that? George effing Will. Oh, I guess it's George F. Will. Well, that was mm. George effing Will. Mm. George Will of the Washington Post. So Tim writes a book, friend of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Tim the lawyer to all you friends out there. Uh, he writes his Frederick, Frederick Douglass book, Self-Made Man. Within a week... There's a column in the New York Times and the Washington Post about it. That's a pretty big deal. Timothy Sandifer is the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, and uh, we are proud to call him a friend of the show. He probably doesn't reciprocate. Tim Sandifer, how are you, Tim? Oh, of course I reciprocate. You guys have been great to me over the years. All right, a few quick points. Number one, um, in next segment, we're going to talk about the Second Amendment, and I would advise the folks listening to not miss it. Number two, question everybody wants to know, are you still rocking the beard? Yes, I am. Yes, yes I am. It's trimmed, but still rocking. We have not been in the same room for a while. And, and thirdly, and most importantly, are you aware that Jack has been attempting humor by claiming you have written a book about Buster Douglas, <laughs> you former heavyweight champion? You probably don't know who that is because you don't follow I have sports. no there you idea go. who that is. <laughs> and it will... Elevate you, not an ounce, not an inch, <laughs> to learn that now, so I'm not going to tell you. Tim Sandifer has written a, a book getting uh, amazing reviews about uh, Frederick Douglass, who I just read is considered by many to be the most influential black man of the 18th, I'm sorry, the 19th century. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I, I would say he's probably he's the most influential black man in all of American history. Certainly, he's among the most celebrated. Douglas was uh, really an astonishing man who rose from uh, being born into slavery in 1818 to a white father he never met and a black mother he never saw after the age of seven. And he, he rose from that position to becoming one of the nation's foremost intellectuals, uh, a diplomat. He was ambassador to Haiti shortly before his death, a best-selling author, a worldwide celebrity, one of America's greatest speakers, and, of course, one of the greatest intellectuals in defense of freedom that American history has seen. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me. So um, his, his speaking on uh, what individual freedom is all about is as good as any of the founding fathers. Uh, in some ways better. He was a, a brilliant writer. And, you know, when you read, like, if you read the Founding Fathers stuff, some of them are great writers like Thomas Jefferson. Some of them, you know, it's a little tough slogging. I mean, re- I love James Madison, but reading James Madison is not something for the faint of heart. <laughs> Ted <Whereas> Flowery. <laughs> Douglas had this a beautiful writing style and speaking style that is just, it's really remarkable to think that this came from a man who had, l- literally speaking, no education who had to steal his literacy. The story goes that when he was a young boy, he was sent to live in Baltimore with some relatives of his owners, and he observed the the lady of the house reading the Bible one day, and as a young, curious boy, he asked her if she would teach him to read, and she thought, well, okay, and so she started to teach him to read, and he made such good progress at it that she bragged about it to her husband. And he flew into such a rage at this that because um, learning to read would unfit a boy to be a slave. It would give him ideas about running away. And Douglas writes in his memoirs, this was the ver- first decidedly anti-slavery lecture I had ever heard. He realized immediately that illiteracy was a tool that was used to oppress black people. And so he found out, he figured out clever ways to learn to read on the sly, including 
bribing neighborhood white boys to teach him how to write. He would trick them into it. He would go out and say, I bet I can write better than you can. And the white school child would say, I bet you can't. And then sort of a Tom Sawyer standoff, you know, and teaching him how to how, uh, his, his words and his letters that way. Then he wow. saved up his coins and bought a copy of a book and started reading on his own and, and became such a reader that by the time he was, you know, in his 30s or 40s, he was an accomplished author and a speaker of un, un eloquence one thing i kept thinking as i was following in your book uh, there's so many different different uh, places in his life where it could have gone you know where he could have just ended up uh, dying or working in a field until he was broken and dead and 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 you know some twists and turns some of them by his own making some of them lucky he, he managed to uh you know become what he became but in a democracy, what we're, we're all counting on and why a democracy in a free country works so well is we get to utilize all the talent that shows up to the best of its ability. That's what you hope for. And during slavery, slavery, obviously, somebody like him who was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, all that brilliance could have been lost as he just did, you know, mule-like work under the lash in the hot sun. It's, it's just yeah. it's disgusting. And that's a, that's very well said. That because if you think about uh, another example, that would be the the situation of women. Douglas was a lifelong feminist. He advocated for female suffrage suffrage literally until the day he died. He had given a speech that morning in defense of female suffrage and came home for lunch and he collapsed in the hallway of his home from a heart attack. So Douglas uh, emphasized how much brain power America was missing out on by oppressing women and keeping them out of the workforce and making it impossible, making it against the rules for them. To vote or even serve in the military. Douglas even spoke in defense of women's right to serve in the military in the 1870s uh, and, and in the Middle East today. Can think about the amount of brain power that is wasted by the oppression of women in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, we have succeeded tremendously. Our economic standard of living in this country has gone way up because we allow women to participate in the workforce and contribute their knowledge and skills. Tim Sandifer, Tim the Lawyer's on the line, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute, has written a uh, highly acclaimed new book about Frederick Douglass, the title of which I don't think I have in front of me. A self-made man, or just a self-made man. What made you decide to write a book about Frederick Douglass? Well, Douglas has been a hero of mine since I was in high school. I, I remember very clearly when I first encountered him, I read something he had, uh, a speech that he gave in the 1860s, uh, and it really, it really struck me for its eloquence. Douglas was, um, it was right before the end of the war, and Douglas was saying, we have been asked, we abolitionists, what shall we do with the slaves if they are freed? Our, my answer has been the same from the very beginning. Do nothing with us. Leave us alone. Your doing has caused all of the mischief with us. If you see us on our way to work or on our way to school, leave us alone. He says, if the apples are disposed to drop from the tree too early, I am not in favor of artificially wiring them onto the tree in some, in some fashion. I'm saying, let us alone, and if you untie our hands, I think we will live. And I, I thought this was so well said and so brilliant that he, I, I started reading everything I could get my hands on about Douglas, and, and when the opportunity came was able to, to write this up. The book is titled Self-Made Men, by the way, after a lecture that Douglas himself gave called Self-Made Men. 
which was his most popular lecture. That's how he made his living. A, a large part of it was traveling the country speaking. And his most popular lecture was called Self-Made Men. And it was sort of a history of the American self-made type, the, the Benjamin Franklins, the Abraham Lincolns, the Benjamin Bannockers, who rose from the bottom rungs of society through their own efforts. And as he put it, if they have risen high, they have built their own ladders. Uh, I'm struck by uh, how similar his themes are to uh, Jason Riley's book, uh, Please Stop Helping Us. But, you know, that's a quick aside. So, Tim, you've, you've caught a little flack for the book. Some people are unhappy with it. Do you want to talk about that at all? Well, there was the, the Times article that, that was mentioned before. At, uh, there's a historian at Yale named David Blight who um, is, has been working on a Douglas biography of his own. And we're, it's supposed to be coming out in October, which I hope is true because we've you know, been waiting for about 30 or 40 Octobers in a row now. But um, his, uh, <laughs> Meow! <laughs> Cat fight between the intelligentsia! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I kid. If it's a good book, it's worth the wait. But but Blight is as 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 a Yale professor writing in the New York Times. He is of the the leftist persuasion, and he objects to my characterizing Douglas as a libertarian, as a defender of individual liberty. And I'm very happy to let Douglas speak for himself. Douglas was quite overt about his rejection of the idea that the former slaves or that anybody in the country should become wards of the state or depend on government charity. Now, he did believe in certain kinds of government aid, the Freedmen's Bureau and things that were set up after the war uh, to help the former slaves because, of course, they had been oppressed largely by state governments, and it was only legitimate to give them a head start when they had been deprived for so many years before the end of the war. That made perfect sense. But that's very different than the kind of controlling regulatory welfare state that we see today, and Douglas would certainly not have endorsed. And on top of that, Douglas also rejected socialism. Now, remember, in Douglas's, Douglas died about 20 years before the Soviet Revolution. So socialism was a new idea in his day. And he rejected the idea of socialism, and his earliest biographer explains why. His, uh, his first biographer was a guy named Frederick Holland, who wrote his book with Douglas's assistance. And he says in the book, people will only work for two reasons, either to earn more money or to escape punishment. And socialism eliminates the first option. So if you ever had a nation that were ever to establish socialism on a nationwide scale, you would have to have a nationwide system of punishment so that socialism would so much resemble Negro slavery as to be intolerable. That's what he wow, said. Wow, that, that is unbelievable. Amen. And, and Douglas says, the, says of this book, he says, it does me scrupulous justice. So we know what Douglas thought of socialism, and so it's not surprising that a Yale professor writing in the New York Times finds himself on the opposite side of Frederick Douglass. Blight by name, blight by nature. Well, here's, mm-hmm. here's something we know something about uh, in terms of getting attention. The fact that a Yale professor felt the need to write a piece in the New York Times about your book is a damn good thing. No matter what. Said, a friend of mine said, you know, they used to think that you were beneath contempt. Now you have risen to the level of contempt. <laughs> there you go. And that, that is something. <laughs> That's beautiful. That is something. So the book is Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, and it is great. And I'll tell you one th- another thing. I guess I've read a lot about slavery through my life. I understand slavery. It's awful and all the reasons why. But it's been a long time since I'd read the particulars. And, and, and you're, you're laying out in the early chapters of what the reality of slavery was like. Man, that's a refresher course in the horrors of slavery. Good reminder. Something. Indeed. Frederick Douglass, self-made man. Order it, download it, buy it, etc., wherever books are sold. 
Hey, if you, I'm a little burlier fellow than you are, Tim. If you need me to go fight that Yale guy, I will. <laughs> how, how, how old an old boy is he? I have no idea, but uh, I know he's not a young gentleman. I, I'm more than happy to stand up for your honor so you're like ready a gentleman f- of old. You want to fight an elderly right. Yale professor. All right, so listen. Uh, Tim Sandifer is uh, also a constitutional scholar. Uh, and and is a, a great speaker on the Second Amendment and uh, related just, issues. It's and, in the news these days. Yeah, you may have heard. And uh, Tim, can you hang around for a couple of minutes? We'll talk Second sure. Amendment. Yeah, sure. Beautiful Timothy Sandifer. I do not. Institute. I do not recommend books lightly. I cannot wait to read it. And and it's only 140 pages. And a dullard like me can read it. You don't have to be like Tim or Joe to read this thing. Oh, stop I, it! I can read it, please. And it's it's a damn good book. Uh, I hope it makes its way into schools and stuff like that. I mean, that's where it belongs. Love it. Love it. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. We've been talking with Tim, the lawyer. We call him that because that's what he used to be as a caller. Yeah. He'd call into the show, and he'd be on the screen as Tim, the lawyer. He was just a lawyer who listened to the show and would contribute and often, usually, mostly tell us we were wrong about various things, which was, I don't know, remember it that way. Perfectly fine. Timothy, Timothy Sandifer is the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Tim, the lawyer. Uh, Tim, did you know uh, Jack and I have been invited to a, a big to-do at the Hoover Institution at Stanford? Oh, fancy. Yeah. Clearly a mistake. I, well, or, or they want us own, to bust the tables. Do you even own a tux? I don't think... Maybe you could switch off. One, you know, you, you, uh, Jack could go in for half an hour, come back out, switch the tux over, and Joe goes in for half an hour. I don't think it's a tux occasion. It's a, it's a, it's a meeting of the minds. Yeah, I guess we're going to ask questions of some thinkers or something like that, and I, hobnob with them. The simpleton intellectualism of Armstrong and Getty. Apparently, a dude who uh, organizes the thing listens, shh, 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 listens regularly. No, we're on the list of the leading intellectuals in the Western uh, United States. So and I didn't yeah. offend him with my below-average intelligence. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, we're talking with Tim Sandifer. So, the reason I've heard... You explain your thoughts on the Second Amendment are because days after another mass shooting in American history in San Bernardino, in which your brother was murdered, uh, we had you on and and we asked you about that. And I didn't actually know what you were going to say at the time. And then, like now, uh, family members of victims were being elevated, and maybe rightfully so, in in their opinion on these things. Just like we heard the kids at the White House yesterday, um, you know, because they have uh, some personal knowledge of this stuff. Uh, well, I don't know about that. I think what happens is there it becomes very convenient for the pro gun control side to trot people out who are grief stricken and who are not necessarily experts on gun control legislation or the constitutionality uh, of gun control and to wring people's hearts in an emotional way in order to overcome the intellectual and logical objections 
to those kinds of restrictions. And this is a common problem in a democracy that people are swayed by their emotions instead of by their minds. And those who would take our freedom away capitalize on that and exploit it to our detriment. And that's what's going on in this situation is that by taking people who are understandably suffering from grief and and distress and putting them in front of the cameras and having them shout down congressmen on live television and so forth and so on, rather than having a rational, logical argument about the law, about the history, about the effects of this kind, these kinds of restrictions, whether they're a good idea in a rational sense. Instead, we're just going to throw our emotions about, which I think is, is wrong, especially when what you're talking about is a proposal to take away people's constitutional and natural rights to self-defense. Well, and if you want to restrict firearm ownership, usage, availability, et cetera, et cetera, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by shouting, I don't want to hear about blah, 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 when you're going to hear about it. You have to. You're going to run up against the Constitution. So if you actually want to solve a problem we have in society, you've got to recognize that rationally. But well, anyway. And I believe, I remember asking you at the time, do, do you feel like you should get a special voice because you had a family member killed in one of your shootings and you thought, no, you, you, yep. you, you don't. You, right. Your opinion isn't more important because of that. That's right. My opinion, my opinion is more important because I happen to be a constitutional scholar. Yes, true. And so I know about the Constitution and the Second Amendment, but I, I am not an expert on firearms. I would not know one gun from another uh, for the most part. I've, I've virtually never fired a gun in my life. And most of, these other, most of these people discussing this issue are the same way. Most of them are woefully ignorant of the technical terms that they throw around. They use terms like assault weapon and so forth, and, and these terms, they are... Uh, have no definition whatsoever, or they're not uh, able to tell you what the definition of it of these terms are, and yet they're demanding that the federal or state governments deprive people of these weapons that are necessary for their self-defense, that they harm innocent persons, violate the constitutional rights of innocent persons because of something that some other person did. And that seems to me that's unjust. And for that reason, people should listen to me because I know about the Constitution and I know about freedom. But because I had a close relative who was murdered by a person with a gun, that does not make my opinion more valid or less valid than another person. Is your belief, having studied this, and we barely have two minutes for God's sake, but anyway, uh, that the Founding Fathers intended the Second Amendment to be an individual right to own a firearm? I don't think that question matters because I think the 14th Amendment guarantees that right. Uh, this gets a little bit technical, but when the Second Amendment was written, I think that it is arguable that the Second Amendment was intended to refer to military service. But when the 14th Amendment was written in 1868, and that amendment applies the first 10 amendments to the states, by 1868, people had come to view gun ownership as an individual right, and it was clearly necessary. We're just talking about Frederick Douglass. And in the post-war South, black Americans very much needed firearms to defend themselves. In fact, Frederick Douglass said that freedom depends on the three boxes, the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, and was very much an advocate of the right of black Americans to own firearms in self-defense. It was when they were disarmed by state governments that they were subject to oppression and violence and the reinstitution of slavery. So I think it's the question is what the 14th Amendment tells us, and that history tells us that, yes, the right to possess firearms is an individual right. Tim Sandifer, we need to have a more extended discussion on this topic at some point if we can impose on your time. I hope uh, we can set that up. I'd love to. Timothy Sandifer, 
VP for Litigation, Goldwater Institute. His fabulous book is Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. He also has a lot of other really good books that you can probably find on the Internet unless you're an idiot. Thanks a lot, Tim. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you, guys. Great to talk to you, Tim. Thanks. What's coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, the NRA is firing back at its critics, and America is sending a major political celebrity to the Olympics' closing celebrations coming up minutes from now. And will Fathead's sister be there to meet this celebrity? Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. A lot of praise for Tim the Lawyer, of course, in the text line. Every time I hear Tim Sandifer, I'm impressed by his intellect, authenticity, and insights. Uh, damn it, you have a Second Amendment discussion with Tim for 15 minutes, not five. Yeah, we know, yeah. we know. Yeah. The clock, yeah. it's a bastard. Yeah. But we will we'll talk to him again. Yeah, and we his should. fabulous wife, Christina, who's every bit the brainiac and has been one of the uh, great forceful advocates for the right to try which is a, a gaining momentum thanks to the Goldwater Institute. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll get back with them soon. Disappointing to me that they don't want to have kids. They need to crank out like 10 kids at least. Yeah. Let's get the news. Sorry, Christina. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I mean, sick of that. I mean, certainly Tim has an important role in that. Well, yeah, raising 10 kids is but not. But birthing them is not to be overlooked. <laughs> True. News now with Marsha Phillips. NRA Chief Wayne LaPierre says supporters of gun control are exploiting the school shooting in Florida to promote an anti-gun agenda. He says opponents of gun rights want to sweep under the carpet the failure of institutions to follow laws already on the books. That is unquestionably true. As is his suggestion that people are trying to exploit this. On the other hand, there are people who honestly are are, are, are grief and terror stricken about kids. So, you know, let's 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 not go to people's motives so quick. He and NRA spokeswoman uh, Dana Lausch addressed conservatives at the CPAC conference, Lausch telling them, "We will not be gaslighted into thinking that we are responsible for a tragedy that we had nothing to do with." Going on to add, the NRA is not responsible for stopping possible mass shootings. It is not our job to follow up on red flags. It is not our job to make sure that states are reporting to the background check system. That is true, too. What's gaslighted mean? That means manipulated into believing something, psychologically manipulated into believing something. Making someone question their own sanity. Right. Gotcha. Right. Following Every day. Following all this, President Trump tweeted his defense of the NRA this morning. The folks who work so hard at the NRA are great people and great American patriots. They love our country and will do the right thing. Make America great again. That you know, was the president's tweet. As I think it's worth pointing out, because you hear this repeating all the time, how the NRA buys all these Congress people, and it does make political contributions, but um, their purpose is to defend gun rights. And I, Joe Getty, will happily and respectfully listen to your arguments in favor of further restrictions, background checks, blah, blah, blah. I'm in favor of some of it. Um, But the NRI's power is in mobilizing voters. It's not in bribing people. They help people who believe what they believe know what's going on and get them to the polls. It's not about bribery. It's about votes. So you've got to change hearts and minds. I hear some of those plucky kids from Florida demonizing the uh, NRA. It's not the NRA, it's the voters that you have to convince. Um, boy, Tucker Carlson was talking last night about uh, the amount of media attention this got yesterday, and, and it should have. It should have gotten this attention. Those kids who saw their classmates shot in front of them, wondering if they were next, speaking about guns. But 
Tucker Carlson made the point that there's a a march for life every year in Washington D.C. with a lot of kids too, mm-hmm. uh, marching Thousands. for for what they think is a gruesome crime of murdering babies for abortion. And the media doesn't think their opinion counts on that issue. They don't they don't put them on TV and think, see, this is what this high schooler thinks right about abortion. Nope, and the horror of it. Um, they don't they don't think that that matters on that issue. Ivanka Trump is going to be meeting face-to-face with a high-ranking North Korean general this Sunday. The president's daughter is going to meet the North Korean general at the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympics in South Korea. So, North Korea sent their Ivanka Trump, as the media dubbed, fathead sister. Right. So we're sending our Ivanka Trump, who happens to be Ivanka Trump. And they're sending a guy who masterminds sinking one of their ships and bombing one of their islands. Now that's some diplomacy. So is Fathead sister not going to be at the closing ceremonies, we don't believe? At this okay. point, all we're hearing is that she's going to meet with the North Korean general, but who knows what's going on in the back? Why would Ivanka Trump, why would the president's daughter... She's an advisor, Jack. Mm-hmm. Why is she an advisor? A hot, hot advisor. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that out loud? So we're going to have the president's daughter meet with the general from North Korea for yes. some reason. High-level talks. The real Ivanka Trump will be there in place of the sister Really, of the least they can do Kim is send Jong-un. their Ivanka Trump. <laughs> Maybe. That's just hurtful. Maybe they will. Maybe the two Ivankas will meet. Jeez Louise. Uber's CEO is saying that the company's flying taxis goals are for real and they will be a viable option in about five to ten years. Speaking at an investor forum in Japan this week, the CEO says he sees flying cars as a viable option for Uber users to get around cities and nearby locations. I say no way. I just can't imagine how it would work. I'm impressed by the flying Uber. I'm really, really impressed by the landing Uber. (laughs) I mean, if I'm the only one with the flying car, it works great. But sure. if everybody else has a flying car mm. and their own ideas of where they want to go mm. and how to get there and that sort of stuff, I don't understand how it works. Fender benders are different when they make you fall from the sky. Well, and even without that, congestion. You can't just stop and hover, can you? Are these helicopters? I don't know. Oh, they're going to they're gonna take off and land vertically. Well, there you go. So yeah. they're just going to hover in midair. Stuck and, in hover traffic. <laughs> Because wouldn't it be similar to the way the way MapQuest now routes people through uh, neighborhoods that didn't have traffic? Now there's congestion there. Well, although there won't be congestion because you can fly over buildings, obviously. You can fly anywhere. Right. Well, you're going to have to have some lanes. You just can't have people going willy-nilly. Why not? I'm still thinking 2D. <laughs> We're in 3D space now. Come yeah, on now. It's, exactly. it's a, it's a cube. You're thinking squares, imagination. Exactly. Come on, man. Uber says it's got a goal of having demo flights in Los Angeles by 2020, two years from now. Demo flights. Listen, I've taken a lot of Uber rides. I love the app, uh, Lyft, too, whatever, and I've seen a lot of their drivers. I'm not sure I want them flying over my home, powered by whirling metal blades. (laughs) I've got a goal to go cocktailing with Scarlett Johansson by the end of 2019. We'll we'll see which of these goals come true, I suppose. (laughs) Right. Here, here. Even money to me. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips in the Armstrong and Getty Show, Conscience of the Nation. The old... Good job, Squawky. I I keep forgetting about the eagle screech. (laughs) The bald eagle. This this he whole sits on uh, Marshall's shoulder. This whole flying Uber Uber thing will be great for a while when it's only the super rich that can afford them for the super rich because there'll just be a few of them in the air. It'll be incredibly expensive. There'll be a barrier to entry. Sure. And so, but once it's affordable, it'll just it'll be undoable. I just can't see how you'd make it work. I don't see it being affordable. 
but I don't know. I get this is so far down the list of my concerns. Flying oh, yeah. Ubers. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I just, no, I do, just I think it's, yeah. Well, yeah. Do oh, I think yeah. it's a problem? No. Well, yeah. yeah. I just <laughs> think it's ridiculous. Be, they'll all be equipped with computer guidance systems. I suppose that's the most likely thing is it's just something the super rich can now yeah. do to get around really fast. Right. But helicopters are incredibly expensive sure. to operate. Yeah. Do you know why? Because it takes all that gear to make them safe. I took a private plane, and it's ridiculous how expensive that is. Right. And a helicopter is multiples more expensive right. than oh, that. Oh, but this will be like a helicopter, but a real Really, really cheap one. Oh, good. Super. With a really cheap pilot. So cheap, you can go across town for 100 bucks. Great. Dream come true. So, why are we talking to Deborah Saunders, a longtime friend of the Armstrong and Getty Show? She's a White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and we're going to talk to her about the listening session at the White House yesterday. Gotcha. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The Conscience. The Armstrong and Getty Show. It doesn't make sense. Fix it. Should have been one school shooting, and we should have fixed it. And I'm pissed. Because my daughter, I'm not going to see again. That's some powerful stuff yesterday out of parents who lost kids. and Yeah. School kids who lost friends or just, you know, just the fact that they had to cower for the, the fear for their lives. Yeah, God, I saw one kid on there talking about, I was in a closet for four hours texting my parents I thought I was going to die. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have a couple of reactions to that clip. Number one, um, it's really, really important to remember that legislation's hell, a hell of a lot more than just an abstract exercise. It affects real people in real ways. And so the listening session of the White House is valuable in that regard. On the other hand, he's wrong. There's no way we could, quote unquote, have fixed it after one school shooting. It's way too complicated a problem. But it's worth hearing those voices. Big, quote-unquote, listening session at the White House yesterday. Deb Saunders. How about, I just have to interject this. How about the fact that so far, I think, after these school shootings, not a single thing has happened. It's pretty extraordinary. Not much. Uh, Deb Saunders is the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, longtime columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and a person we've admired for a long damn time, Deborah J. Saunders. Hey, Deb, how are you? I'm doing great. You're I'm at, looking. Uh, I'm standing. I'm at CPAC right now, and I found a quiet spot and a patio. I'm looking out. I'm looking over. I can't quite see the Capitol, but I'm near it. What CPAC? Is, that's uh, that's the thing you use if you have the uh, the snoring problem, right? <laughs> CPAC. S- sleep apnea. <laughs> what is CPAC for people who don't know? Uh, the Conservative Political Action Committee, and this is like this is Disneyland for conservatives. It is. It and 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 by the way. There were two NRA speakers before Mike Pence uh, spoke. He just finished, um, but this is this is where conservatives love to gather and and let it all hang out. And they're just totally energized right now. Okay, well, it's interesting. It's interesting because the the president seems to be willing to at least have a conversation on this stuff and has thrown out some possibilities, which is you know unlike any Republican president. Uh, are people uh, seem like they're open to any possibilities at CPAC, or is it still holding the line against? Any changes? Well, so that's a really great question. And the answer is that uh, 
the NRA at this event talks about how they want better background checks, and they say they've been fighting for them and people haven't been listening, which I think is, is rather fascinating. Uh, but let's talk about the listening session because that was pretty amazing uh, to see parents talking. And it, you just heard so many different points of view. You saw a, a mother of a Sandy Hook victim uh, who definitely wants to have much tougher gun laws. And she's sitting there in a conversation with people who are saying we want more armed uh, guards at school, uh, talking talking about maybe arming teachers. And you've got a real variety of opinions. It, it just goes to show it's not like there really is one evident answer. Right, absolutely not. But again, and, and I differ from a lot of those people who spoke in what I see as workable solutions or solutions that score with the Second Amendment and that sort of thing. But I do think it's mm-hmm. absolutely worth reminding ourselves of the real, of what we're talking about. Right. It's mm-hmm. not a damn sports game. It's beautiful children or concert goers or whomever else dying. And we ought to give it a hell of an effort to figure this out. And I say this as a pro-gun guy. we got to give it a hell of not not a passing sort of, well, we're talking infrastructure or, or some other, you know, legislative uh, uh, goal type thing. This is, this is critical. I know. And it was just so sad to hear the stories. You saw um, Andrew Pollack, who lost his daughter, Meadow. He's like, I'm never going to see her again. Totally devastated with his sons. You heard from a high school student who said he, hey, you know, he finally had for, for, was enjoying going to school, and he doesn't know how he can go back again. And and you you heard from kids who who lost friends and family members. It was it was just heartbreaking, and um, it was it it was it was it was a a real slice of America. I thought. Deb well, Saunders, see, go ahead, Deb. See how how families, you know, people who who just all they want to do is send their kids to school in the morning, talking about what they thought could be done differently. You cover the White House for a living. Do you have any idea where the president is uh, throughout his life on guns? Has he ever fired a gun, do we know? I'm sh- oh, that's a really good question. And I'm going to guess with two sons who hunt and with all the events he's been at. He, he, uh, in fact, we know he owned a gun. We know that he had a concealed carry permit oh. at one time. Okay. Um, then, then he had to go through training for that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know... We know that in 2000, he, was, he said that he favored his assault weapons ban, even though he wasn't for gun control. Uh, I think we could see some things out of him, maybe at some point in time, uh, banning ducks. But, you know, he signed an order this week, which just is not going to do anything. Um, maybe he will talk about raising the age for, gun, uh, for buying uh, rifles. Uh, maybe it'll be tougher background checks. It's sort of astonishing that after the Texas church shooting that that didn't sort of fly through, isn't it? And I think that what they what the White House understood is people are frustrated, and it's time for them to be fr- for the White House to be frustrated too. Deb Saunders of the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal is on the line. Did uh, Pence address uh, guns at all at the CPAC speech? Did you see his speech? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yes, he did. And so, you, I mean, you had Dana Lush come out and um, Wayne LaPierre, and they're just, they're righteous about this. They're, they're, um, 
Wayne LaPierre tells the group, you should be afraid. If Democrats ever take power, they're going to try to take away your rights. Uh, Dana Lush says, we're not going to be gadflied. We're not going to be blamed for tragedies we had nothing to do with. And Pence comes out and he, you know, he sort of takes a more somber approach to this. Uh, he, he, he mourns the loss of, of the, the kids who wouldn't. Um, and he talked uh, toward the end of his speech about what the president had done, just having people talk and listen to each other respectfully, which I guess I didn't watch CNN last night. Um, but I think a sort of a different approach. And, you know, if somebody covers the White House, let me talk about politics here for a second, or the stagecraft. Of what do politics. we have? Two minutes, Michael. All right, just yeah, keep it in mind. Thanks, Deb. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so I, it, it wasn't clear how, how if they were going to overly curate this thing and just have a bunch of ideologues and singer fans in the room, and that didn't happen. And what we saw was sort of the president. Some people hinted Trump could be back in 2016 a pragmatist who listened to people and cut deals and, and did things. That was the flavor I got from it anyway. He certainly seems open-minded about it. Is it fair to say this is the most gun conversation we've had? Well, I think it's the most I think it's the it's it's the most two-way conversation we've had. Yeah, instead it certainly feels that way. Sort of, yeah, instead of people sort of just yelling at each other, um I think this is uh I think that this was actually a discussion, not a debate. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I meant by broadest. It seems like the broadest, like uh, uh, you know, array of people who are willing to pitch in and talk about it in a serious way, as opposed to yelling. Uh, Deb Saunders, White House uh, correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. I wish we had more time, Deb, but it's always good to talk. Good to hear from you. Okay, thank you. Right. Have, have fun. Thanks. We'll Bye-bye. talk again soon. Worth saying again after Sandy Hook, an attempt to reinstate the assault weapons ban, which would have covered the AR-15. Went down in flames. 16 Democrats voted against it, along with all the Republicans. Wasn't even close in a vote. Right. Um, I, I wish that'd get thrown into the conversation more often, because it shows you how complicated it would be. And the Democrats controlled the Senate at the time, and it just went nowhere. Yeah, so it's not just the NRA-controlled Republicans stopping this from happening. It's not even close. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.